on? There we go. Good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Romans. We are now starting the kind of verse-by-verse portion of the book of Romans. Last week we introduced it to some degree, um, but now we're just going to start going through in order. So we'll be in chapter 1 today, Romans chapter 1. And we're calling the sermon today, as we get the introduction, a gospel letter. A gospel letter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some black Bibles nearby. You can open up to page 939 if you want to follow along in one of those Bibles. And I say this sometimes, I don't say this every week, but if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to keep one of those. We have, we have more. We're happy for you to have one, so go ahead and keep it if you don't have a Bible at home. Uh, several years back, there was a, a brilliant professor. He was a brilliant academician, um, well-respected, uh, really smart, was offered a lot of great positions. Um, he enjoyed a lot of success, moved around to different institutions, um, yet he had this nagging brokenness, even though he was so successful there was still this nagging brokenness, this nagging feeling of incompletion uh, that he really struggled with. Um, he had tried different philosophies, he tried different religions, um, but kept coming back to this struggle. He had a particular struggle with a sexual addiction. He enjoyed the finer things in life, um, but also uh, became enslaved to his enjoyment of these pleasures and struggled with it. Um, one night, in particular, he was at a friend's house and was feeling really broken over the whole issue. Um, just broken over his inability to fix himself, broken over the mess that his life had become, and he began sobbing, and he went out in his friend's backyard, didn't want his friend to see him cry. Um, He was sobbing so loudly, he decided to kind of meander down the street to get farther away from his friend so his friend wouldn't hear him just sobbing and and wailing and grieving. And as he got farther from the house, he began to hear these children singing in their yard. Uh, And it was interesting because it was a song he'd never heard before. It sounded like just any other common children's song that they might play, you know, patty cake or jump rope or whatever it might be. One of those kinds of children's songs, kids just playing in a garden and singing together. Um, But he never heard it before. And they kept singing, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. At that moment, he felt overcome that God was speaking to him through the voices of these little children. His friend had a Bible on the table back at the house. So he went back to his friend's house. He just grabbed the Bible, cracked it open, and he was in Romans chapter 13. And there in Romans 13, it talked about putting off sexual immorality and putting on the person of Jesus Christ, and he was forever changed. Part of the backstory is he had one of those pesky mothers that was always praying for him. I don't know if you know those types, right? But uh, he had this mother who was a believer who'd been praying for him and praying for him and praying for him and getting him to talk to her pastor and Uh, trying to put these influences in his life. But finally, it was the book of Roman, this gospel letter that we're going to start looking at over the next several months. That's what really broke through. And what's really cool is this guy, then his life took a complete turnaround, and he began to impact Western culture to a huge degree. This is uh, St. Augustine or Augustine is how some people say his name. A really famous foundational thinker and theologian. He later went on to become a bishop, and he had a huge influence on the history of the world. Um, this, this letter that we're looking at, that we're going to begin digging into over the next several months, had a big impact on Augustine. Um, it's had a big impact on a lot of people. And so I just want to warn you up front that it's going to get in your head and it's going to mess with your life. So I just want to warn you to be careful as we pick it up and read it like Augustine did. It's going to mess with us. I think in two different ways. Some of us come in here uh, already knowing Jesus, already following him, 
And what Romans will do is it'll deepen us in a way we didn't imagine. It'll show us how incredible the riches of God's mercy are for those of us that already thought we knew the story. Romans will help us dig deeper and see how profound and how good God's kindness to us is in Jesus. And then there's also some of us that just, just don't know the story. And Romans is a great book for introducing you to the, for the first time to the story of who God is, this goodness he has for us in the gospel. So I want us to read just the first seven verses, and as we look at the first seven verses, we'll start to unpack some of the themes that we're going to keep hammering on throughout the series. So we'll look at the first seven verses together. Um, He covers so many of the big, broad themes that I don't know that I'm really going to do them all justice, but because we'll be in Romans for several months, we're going to do them justice eventually. So we'll kind of touch on, tip our toes in the water a little bit, these major themes. So follow along with me, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, help us. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would help us to be uh, open-hearted and open-minded to you, that you would teach us what you have for us in this text. We pray that, that you would change our hearts as well, that you would help us to see how good you are, that you would help us to fall more deeply in love with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're calling uh, this first kind of introduction to the book a gospel letter. Uh, we see the word gospel that appears, and I just want to define it up front. It's one of those words that we hear so often in Christian circles that sometimes we think we know what it means, but it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. To other people. So linguistically, the way I remember it is kind of, it has, uh, a lot of people think old English roots of good spell, which would be like good words, right? And so it, it literally means a good message. In the Greek, it's the, the putting together of that prefix good and then message, right? So that, that's what the word means. We have uh, the word evangelism comes from that, euangel, uh, a lot of other words we get from that, and it just means good news, and specifically the good news that we're going to see in Romans has multi-layers to it, but we want to start with the good news of us being reconciled in relationship back to God. There's, there's more to it, right? There's the, the reconciliation of the entire cosmos, right? That's, it's huge and it's deep and it's broad, but it starts just simply with we're cut off from God because of our own rebellion and sin, and God has laid on Jesus on the cross our sins and given us his righteousness. It's a, an exchange, a substitution that takes place. And so by faith, we can be forgiven, we can be adopted as children of God, and that's, that's good news, and really that, that changes everything. And so this is a letter about the gospel. And as, in we, un, as we unpack it, Paul's going to kind of pull out different themes that are going to be important to him. As I said, I don't feel like I'm really hammering every single little piece of it, but I just wanted to kind of hit on what I think are the big pieces here. And so the first thing that we see about this gospel letter is that it is an ancient gospel. Paul talks about how this is ancient, it's promised beforehand, it came in the past from the Old Testament scriptures, from the prophets. So we see this 
uh, in verse 1 and 2. If you look at verse 1 and 2 again, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So it starts off with Paul introducing himself. That's the normal way you would introduce a letter in that time. Um, not how we usually write handwritten letters, but it's kind of like how we do emails. You know, you you get all the information up front. You know who it's from. You know who it's to. So up front, you know it's from Paul. And Paul's saying that he's an apostle, which means he's this sent one, right? Literally this uh, emissary, this missionary is one way to translate apostle. Literally means sent one. Another interesting thing about how the word was used in the first century is that the most common usage of the word apostle in the first century was a certifying certificate that went with official imperial cargo. Um, so it has an everyday meaning of, of sent one, messenger, herald, right? Appointed emissary. That's, that's kind of the basic meaning. But there's this connotation from culture of the way that was used day to day was this certifying thing that went with the cargo that said this is uh, coming with the command, the authority of the emperor. This is the emperor's stuff. This is imperial business. And so it has that connotation, that ring in people's ears. Paul's saying he's sent on the authority of the emperor of the universe, Jesus Christ. Then he also says he's a slave. He's a servant. He's not his own man. He belongs to Jesus. He's a servant of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and I'm bringing this message by command of the emperor, and because I'm a sent one, and because I belong to him and I don't belong to myself, I'm bringing this message, which is really an ancient message. It's not a new message. It's a message that God has been talking about for thousands and thousands of years. He says specifically it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we need to remember that the New Testament is not changing the Old Testament. The New Testament is coming in concert with the Old Testament. Everything that the New Testament uh, sets forth as truth is seen as the fulfillment of everything that was promised beforehand in the Old Testament Scriptures. We believe we have one book, not two books, but one book, and that Jesus is the main point of all of it. He's the one that, that makes it all hang together. He's the fulfillment that makes sense of all these prophecies and promises and strange stories we have in the Old Testament. A couple of different places people like to look back to to kind of see where this begins, where God's promising it in the Old Testament. One of the ancient sources, if you want to go back as far as you can, where it's promised beforehand is Genesis 3.15. You've heard me talk about that a lot. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They took the fruit that they were told not to take, and in essence, they were saying, we'd rather not have a relationship with you anymore, God. We'd rather be our own gods. We'd rather do what we think is wise and not obey you. And so, they left his authority and went under their own authority, became their own gods, and plunged the world into death and brokenness. That's the way we understand this story of the first sin, the fall of humanity. God comes in, he makes statements to Adam and to Eve, and he makes this specific curse to the serpent, to Satan, to evil incarnate, and he says, someday the woman's going to have a son that's going to crush your head. And he says, you'll crush his heel but he'll crush your head. And so most theologians say that was the first and most ancient promise of the gospel of Jesus. Someday Jesus is going to come. If you've seen The Passion of Christ, my favorite scene is when he steps on the snake's head. Have you ever seen that movie? It's poetic license, right? We don't actually know of a scene like that in the gospels, but it's beautiful movie making, right? Because it's, it shows you that fulfillment of the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. So that's where it starts. And then, man, I would just say the whole Old Testament is like that. It's just full of these heroes 
They kind of project what Jesus will be like, except they're flawed. And so all these heroes that are like this beautiful picture, this painting that's kind of cracked, and there's a missing piece, and there's a missing edge. So all these heroes of the Old Testament point us forward to, there's going to be a hero that's like this, but better. That's like this hero, that's like this judge, it's like this king, that's like this prophet, but he's better, he's complete. So all these Old Testament stories point us forward to Jesus. We anticipate him eagerly. And there's specific prophecies that just seem so explicit, they blow our mind. Like Isaiah 53 is one that people go to a lot. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Let me read Isaiah 53 to you. I'm just reading a snippet of it. The whole chapter uh, is impressive with its predictions, its promises beforehand from the Old Testament. But it says this, Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you hear that, that poetry, that prediction from the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You're going, yeah, that's... It's very clearly a promise of the Messiah given beforehand, way before he came. And so it's this ancient story. It's beautiful, it's mysterious, and I'll be the first to admit, when we just go back and on a first reading, read the Old Testament, we don't always catch it, we don't always see how deep and beautiful it is, but if you devote yourself to it, if you continue in it, if you read the Old Testament while you're also reading the New Testament that helps you understand the Old Testament, you'll start to see more and more. These stories unfold, like the best stories where these little hints are laid in the early chapters and you don't really know what to do with them, but in the end, like everything is tied together. Those are always the best stories, right? Well, the the Bible's like that, but but 10 times deeper and richer and better. And so it's promised beforehand. It's an ancient gospel. It's a good news that's not brand new news, but it's news in keeping with everything that God has said in the past that he would do. I was thinking as I was studying this this week of our fascination with ancient and alien ideas in our culture. And I think as a culture, because our culture is relatively young, right? Our country just a couple hundred years old. We don't have a lot of old ancient buildings around. We don't have a lot of ancient history, much of it around. So much of what we see are kind of um, cheap plastic facades and temporary buildings and stuff. It's it's hard to uh, feel in touch with ancient things. And so if you go to a place where you see ancient buildings or ancient temples, it's really impressive. I mean, it's really pretty cool. And this comes up as a motif in a lot of uh, movies. I've noticed lately you have this motif where these superheroes go and study these ancient arts and these ancient books to get better at their craft. Have you ever seen this like in the Batman movies? Batman goes to the Himalayan mountains And he apprentices under this ancient secret society and he studies their ancient ways and he gets stronger and can do all these wonderful things, right? I was just watching this week a commercial for the new Doctor Strange movie. Same thing. They must have just ripped it off from Batman, right? I mean, I just think they they recycle these ideas. It's like we're looking for something other. We're kind of used to this cliche reality we live in and we're like, man, I've seen it. I've done it. There's nothing new under the sun. We're kind of bored with our normal life. And we're like, I need something other. I need something ancient and distant and deep and rich. So Dr. Strange, he goes off to the Himalayan mountains again. I've got a picture here just so you see. Apparently, this is where you have to go to find all the cool ancient stuff. 
So you go to the Himalayan mountains, you study with some ancient monks guarding some ancient secrets, having some ancient books, and you practice the ancient art, and then you can be a superhero, right? Um, now, I, I don't want to completely uh, make fun of this. I, I think there's something to it, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense as human beings that there would be deeper things and more distant things and more ancient things that we're longing for that I would say are actually there. And my argument would be that we have the ancient book, right? Like we have it right here. We maybe get bored with it because we think we know everything it says already, even though most of us haven't really studied and read it much. We're familiar with it because it's translated into our language, but you know it's ancient. It comes from another language. There's all this mystery. There's all this distance. It's not really Western. It's really Eastern. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ancient otherness to this book. So I would encourage you to see yourself kind of like this superhero that wants to travel back and study the ancient arts, right? I mean, we've got all the mystery we could ever want right here. We've got all the wonder we could ever want right here. We've got all the alienness that doesn't agree with our everyday life and we want to live differently. Well, there's, there's plenty of challenge for us here. It's real easy to feel like God's not speaking to us anymore, right? Because you don't see a burning bush or you don't hear an audible voice, but God is... He's still speaking. God speaks through His Word. We've got His Word. We've got the words of the ancient prophets. We've got the words of the ancient apostles. And, and I want to challenge you to, to pick up and read. To pick up and read. I want to dare you. Matter of fact, earlier I double-dog dared the earlier service. So I'm going to do it to you as well. I double-dog dare you to study this ancient book. I, I, I dare you to, to pick it up and read it. To study it. To really dig into it to devote yourself to it. It's going to feel alien and other sometimes. It's going to feel ancient sometimes, but there are great riches here. It's an ancient gospel, which means it's old, right? But it's a gospel. It's the gospel. It's good news. It's the hope of mankind. It's the resolution of the entire universe. So the question is, are you afraid to pick it up? Have you really tried? Have you really devoted yourself to it? I, I would challenge you to try, to study, to dig. We have this incredible, magic, wonderful, amazing book that speaks of God's power, His grace to us, His love for us, and we just kind of just leave it on the shelf, right? It's like we're bored with it. But I would pray that you have this like, renewed sense of the wonder of God's Word. It's wonderful. He has incredible things to say to us. One of the really uh, interesting messages that C.S. Lewis talked about was chronological snobbery. You ever heard of the term chronological snobbery? Chronological snobbery is we think we're smart because we're modern people. When if you've really studied much ancient history, we're just dumb people with iPhones, right? We're just dumb people with iPhones, but there have been much greater wisdom in different times over the course of human history. And, and just because we have a few interesting technological devices doesn't really make us wise. doesn't really mean we know how to live. So I challenge you to, to study this ancient gospel, this good news that God has been speaking about beforehand in his holy scriptures. The next thing I would want, want us to think about here is that it's a personal gospel. And when I say personal gospel, I don't mean um, like your own personal Jesus Depeche Mode song where it's like you and me by ourselves in the woods, like that kind of personal where it's just a thing for me. Um, that's how we usually use the word personal. Uh, personal means it's about a person, 
It centers around a person. That's what personal means. This person that we yield to, that we submit to, and that we seek a relationship with. So this person is Jesus. And what we want to do as a people is we want to be a thinking people that understands the facts and studies history and studies doctrine, but we don't want to merely be fact people. We want to join that with our understanding of the person himself. And we want to see the facts and the doctrine as a bridge to meeting and knowing and deepening with the person. So we don't want less than the facts, but I would say we want more than the facts. We want the person himself. Uh, The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says that when you heard Christ preached, you vividly saw him as crucified. And the language that Paul is using there is really dramatic language that we would say almost like you you saw a movie, you saw a video projector, but they didn't have video projectors, right? It's this language of vivid seeing with your eyes, but when you hear preaching, you're not seeing with your eyes, right? It's not synesthesia where your uh, senses are confused. This is you're seeing with the eyes of your heart. You're seeing the reality of who Jesus is with the eyes of your mind when you hear the facts and the truth about who he is and what he's done for us. And so we want to bridge that gap, right? We want to hear the facts of who he is so that we can meet the person. We can come in contact with them. I grabbed a picture here of someone shaking hands. Here's somebody shaking hands. Again, my question for you is, do you just know facts? Do you just know ideas about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus, the person? So it's a personal gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, he just touches on the nature of this person, who he is. Verse 3 says, concerning his son. So backing up, this gospel was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. And then now he's describing the gospel. He's saying, concerning his son. It's about the son, the person, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus. Christ our Lord. So he kind of gives us two sides here. The historic church would proclaim, um, collecting the documents of the ancient church, the recordings we have of the apostles, the gospels. He would say Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. So he's fully man. We can relate to him. He loves us. He's been where we've been. He's been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. And also, he's fully God. He's the Lord of the cosmos. He's mighty to save. He's big. He can handle anything that we throw at him. And so, first of all, the flesh, his humanity, he's descended from David, according to the flesh. What does that mean, descended from David? Well, David was part of those Old Testament prophecies, right? God said, I'm going to do something really special through your kingdom, David. He made a promise to David that he would have this forever throne, a forever house. And he wasn't talking about like a particular golden chair or particular wooden house, right, that he lived in. When he's talking about house and throne, he's talking about a dynasty, right? A legacy of kingdoms and kings. And he's telling David, I'm going to work through you and you're going to have a forever kingdom that will come. And so again, going back to all these Old Testament heroes gave us pictures of what the Messiah would be like, but as the Messiah comes, he's the fulfillment and he's better than all these previous heroes and kings and prophets and priests. And so he comes in fulfillment as a descendant physically of David. He's in that line. So that shows us he's in line with this Old Testament story. He fits, right? 
And so many of the books in the New Testament help us to see that. Matthew is the gospel of the four gospels that really goes to a lot of work to show how Jesus is this fulfillment, both literally like his descendancy from David, but also in a literary way, a fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. Hebrews is a great book as well that from other angles shows us how he's the fulfillment of uh, the military hero, hero Joshua and uh, the Exodus hero Moses, and he's fulfillment of all the priesthood and all the sacrifices and all these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of what we've been looking for. So here he says, he's the kind of king that's the right kind of king descended from David. And then also, it says, according to the spirit of holiness, he was declared to be the son of God in power. Declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So his resurrection is what kind of seals, proves, and demonstrates, declares that he is the son of God in power. Now, we have a a slight problem with this, a little side we want to deal with, and cults would say that's when he became or began to be holy or special or godlike or divine. Um, We would say, no, John 1 makes it pretty clear he was always part of God. And so uh, on top of us talking about the person of Jesus and saying he's fully God and fully man, historic Nicene Christianity, we would also say we believe in the Trinity, which we believe there is one God, and this one God is both God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, eternally so. So John 1 makes that real clear. He's always been the Son of God. He's always been God the Son. But here he's declared in power through the resurrection. So the resurrection makes it clear, right? Like we have these little hints when he's healing people and when he's commanding the winds and the waves and when he's casting out demons and when he's speaking with authority in the Gospels. All these things show us, man, this guy, I think he's the one. You know, like people thought... He was the one he said before Abraham was, I am. He's making declarations like this as well. But when the resurrection comes, that's what settles it, right? So that when the apostles are preaching the book of Acts, they're preaching the resurrection, right? We tend to, it's interesting, we tend to focus more on the mechanics that Romans will talk about of this exchange of Jesus taking our sins upon himself, giving us his righteousness. I think part of why we as modern people talk about that a lot is because we have no concept of sacrificial systems, right? Like, that's not the universe we live in anymore, so we have to explain that more. But the apostles, in a, in a uh, culture that had both the Jewish sacrificial systems but all these other uh, mystery cult sacrificial systems, they kind of understood atonement a little more than we, and so they didn't spend as much time on that. They spent a lot of time talking about Jesus is Lord, and we know he's Lord. We know he's the real Caesar because he rose from the dead because of the resurrection. It's declared, it's proven, it's shown that he is the Son of God in power because he rose from the dead. The other thing I would say is, just in case you think, well, what about all the other people that rose from the dead, right? If you've read the Bible, you might be thinking, well, Jesus rose some people from the dead and Elijah rose a guy from the dead. You know, there's some of these things that happen in these miracle stories in the Bible. Um, I would say, really, it might be helpful for you to put those in two buckets in your mind and say one is more like resuscitation and one is resurrection, right? Because when Jesus would heal someone, what do you think happened to him 20 years later? They got sick and died, right? Best we can tell, there was this inbreaking of the new heavens and new earth, this Jesus bringing the kingdom with him and his presence just exuded the healing power of God and this person is healed. And then later on they die, right? Some of you have had serious illness or a problem and you've been healed, but you're probably going to get sick again someday, right? 
Resurrection is a completely different category. It's permanent, whole restructuring. It's, it's being well permanently, right? It's completely in, uh, living in that eternal life that we're looking forward to. So we've stepped into it in our relationship with God. We're forgiven, we're restored, we're the children of God. But Romans 8 talks about this pretty clearly, that there's still this other part we're looking for, right? Where we're completed. There's an idea that we're adopted already, right? I'm, I'm God's child. I can come to him. I can pray to him. He loves me. I'm adopted into his family. But the sons of God will be revealed, it says in Romans 8, at, at the end of time. And when that happens, all of the cosmos will be fixed. All the universe will be fixed at the same time. So Jesus is already there, and that's the future that we look forward to. So you might be healed now of your sickness, then you're probably going to die, but you're still looking to the full resurrection that will come later, and Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. And Jesus is there now. Jesus didn't just resuscitate and then die 10 years later. Jesus was resurrected, and he is alive at the right hand of the Father. And so that's an important distinction theologically to make. So again, I've got the picture of the people shaking hands. My question for you is, I've just relayed a lot of facts about Jesus, is have you memorized facts about Jesus or do you know Jesus personally? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Is he someone you can lean on? Do you recognize that he loves you, that he's calling to you, that he desires a relationship with you? It's an important distinction to make. It's an important distinction to make. You can know facts about him without knowing him. He is both mighty to save and he's good to save. He's both a human who understands you. He's been where you've been. He's also God. He can fix what's broken inside of us. I'd encourage you to call out to him personally, to seek a relationship with him, a real relationship. As it says in Revelation 3, he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. That's a a personal relationship that he's asking for. He doesn't say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone memorizes some verses, then everything's cool, right? He says, I want to come in to the doorway of your life. I invite you to invite him in. The last thing that we see is as you do that, as you get to know him personally, he will transform you. It's a transformational gospel. And this is the warning I gave up front, just warning. This book, this Holy Spirit that accompanies this book, this Jesus that this book is about, he's going to haunt you. And he's going to change you. So I just want to warn you up front, he's coming after you. He wants nothing less than your entire life. It says in verse 5 that this Jesus, this person, everything that he is, Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So I'm going to come back to obedience of faith and going to spend some time on that. But let's look at the words surrounding it first. It says that Paul received grace. God's kindness to Paul is what knocked Paul off of his horse when Paul was a terrorist killing Christians, right? So Paul is a Christian killing terrorist, and Jesus knocks him off the horse and says, no, Paul, you're you're coming after me when you're coming after those Christians. And Paul was converted by God's grace. It's kind of a violent grace, but Paul's turned around, right? And then he's given this apostleship, this emissariness, this sent oneness, right? He's a messenger of God's grace. And his message is to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name, Jesus' name, for the sake of Jesus' name, so that more people would see how awesome and how glorious and how good Jesus is. So when we talk about um, the sake of Jesus, we're talking about 
for his honor. Sometimes people will pray that, right? In Jesus' name or for Jesus' sake are kind of like two ways of saying the same thing. You're coming at it from different angles. For the sake of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you're uh, earning him something he didn't already have. It means you're giving him the honor that he's deserved all along, right? So you're honoring his name. And then he says, among all the nations, among all the nations, this has always been for every ethnic group, for every tribe. That's what the gospel is for. Not just certain kinds of us, right? It's not just for certain people. One of our core values is always translate. That means we're always going to be seeking to communicate this gospel to all of our friends, to all of the people we know, to those people we don't like, to the people we don't understand. We're always trying to translate it into different languages and show Christ's love to other kinds of people along the way. So he says, among all the nations, among all the ethne, the tribes, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, including you locally who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he defines God's people as those who are are loved by God. We talked about this adoption we have in Christ and also called to be saints. Saint literally is a set-apart one, a holy one. So we're loved by God, we're adopted into his family, and we're set apart to be different, to be holy, to be righteous like our God. So what is this obedience of faith? I want to kind of center on that. So we've got transformation in this gospel when he talks about how God loves us and how um, God calls us, sets us apart to be saints. We also have this phrase, obedience of faith, which I think is a really helpful term. Because later on in Romans, we're going to see Paul is saying, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, have a kind of obedience that the Jews don't even have. So the Jews would practice a kind, not all Jews, but these Jews who are missing Jesus would have a kind of obedience that said, hey, I've done these external rules, these external laws, I've obeyed in these ways, so you owe me now, God. And so it's an obedience that's trying to impress God and impress other people, but it's not an obedience based on faith in God's grace to us. And Paul is arguing, you know what? These primitive tribesmen that know faith in Jesus begin to love God and love neighbor. That's the kind of obedience God is looking for. That's the obedience of faith. It's an obedience that says, I trust that God is good. He saved me in Jesus, and because of that, I'm going to live differently now. And I may stumble, and it may not be perfect, but I'm going to follow him because I trust him, because I have faith. So we need to remember there's two different ways of missing this. Biblical faith is obedience as well, but it's obedience based on faith. So the way religious people miss out on Jesus is we say, I'll do the obedience so that God will owe me. But it's not really based on faith. And then the way non-religious people miss is they just say, forget it, I don't want any part of it, right? And so it's kind of more tricky for those of us that are religious because we, on the outside, look like we're obeying, but often our heart is not. And so this thing that ties both sides together says, yeah, I want you to obey. I want you to do what's right, but based on God's grace to you, faith in what Jesus has done for you. It's the obedience of faith. And again, it's going to take the whole book for Paul to work that out. But that's an important little seed that we're going to look at in more detail. I have a picture of someone going through physical therapy. One of the words that's used throughout the New Testament is the word exhort. And it's a word parakaleo in Greek, which is like coming alongside, calling someone. It's like a cheerleader. It's like someone who's comforting and helping. And it's the sense of you putting your arm around somebody 
Uh, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in this way as the comforter or the counselor in John chapter 14. The words used repeatedly of how we as Christians should interact. And so again, the idea is we should be helping each other to live a new life, to live differently. Again, it's a transformational gospel. It's a gospel that helps us to to live in new ways, to walk out this newness of life. My question for you is, are you changing? Are you living in a new way? Are you learning the obedience of faith? Not, not are you perfect, right? Not have you done everything right from now on, but are you in process? Are you learning to obey because God can be trusted? Because you love him? Because of the grace he's shown to you in Jesus? That's the spiritual life. Seeing the good things, this gospel, this good news of what God has given us in Jesus that our sins placed on him, that his righteousness is given to us, that we can trust him. And as we see that we can trust him, then we begin to obey. Then we start to think, man, this, this father knows what's best for me. I, I want to do what he says. And we begin to live in new ways. My prayer is that as we study Romans together, that will, that will deepen in us. We'll all kind of be on this track together, beginning to understand more deeply the, the grace that God has for us in Jesus and beginning to walk in newness of life. As we live side by side with each other, as we pray for each other, as we build friendships with each other, the goal is that we would come alongside and help each other as we are transformed by this gospel, by this good news. As I said earlier, I just want to warn you um, that this book will, will mess with you. We're going to be in it for a few months. I encourage you to be reading it on your own, studying it on your own as we talk about it together, as we learn from it. It will change us. It's a gospel letter. It's this good news that we have in Jesus. It changed Augustine, who changed the ancient world. Uh, It transformed Martin Luther. This was the book that kind of pushed him over the edge, and he started the Protestant Reformation. This was the main book that transformed John Wesley, who was one of the founders of the great revival uh, in the United States, coming over from Britain. It's transformed and affected a lot of people. Now, do I believe that every book and every letter in the Bible has that transformative effect in our life. Yes, I, I believe all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and training us in righteousness. I believe that sincerely. But there's also this kind of special excitement I have about the book of Romans, just seeing the historic ways that God has used it in different people across time. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that God would use it in great ways here in Clean Texas, in ways that would ripple out across the world. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for the ways you've revealed this good news, this gospel to us. We thank you for the book of Romans, this gospel letter. We pray that you would help us to learn it, uh, to obey it, to live it out because of your kindness to us. Help us to glorify you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.